This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. Uh, this summer, uh, we are going to have our elders are going to be speaking and some of our other uh, people from our church. And so it's been a real blessing. So I don't know if you ever, I know Rhea knows this, but there's this uh, picture of what they call a starving baker, which is someone who bakes for everybody, uh, but never has time to eat. Maybe moms know exactly what that means. Um, And so this summer is a really good time for me to just sit in the front row and take notes and just really uh, hear what God's saying not only to us, but to me through our, our uh, people up here up on the stage. And so it's a real blessing to me, but it's also a blessing to us as a church. One thing I learned years and years ago from Dr. Rutland is that we want to help our people learn to like different types of uh, styles or uh, topics, particularly on styles. So it's like training your kid to eat not just bread, uh, but vegetables, and, and try to get them to have a, a palate that's, that's more refined. And so uh, that's another reason why we like to have people come in uh, from not just hearing from me. So uh, our first elder of this summer uh, is Adam Bechtel. He's no stranger to us. He's a, f- a phenomenal uh, teacher and preacher, and I'd like for us to give him a nice warm welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Mario. Um, He says it's a blessing to him to be able to hear from others. It's actually really a blessing to me to be able to speak in front of you guys. It's it's, uh, something that I didn't realize I craved so much. Um, It's just a great opportunity to uh, share the giftings that God's given me in a way that is a furthering of his kingdom. So I appreciate that you guys keep giving me these opportunities. Uh, This morning, the topic that I'm going to try to tackle, and uh, I picked from a list that Mario suggested for all of us to to share, is how to worship in spirit and truth. Um, So when we talk about worship, there's a lot of different avenues we can sort of take. We can talk about, well, what was worship like in an Old Testament context, or what was worship like in a New Testament context, or you know, what, what about ritual, what about uh, this or that. But really this morning, I wanna look at what the Word tells us about it, and we're, so we're gonna spend a lot of time in Scripture. Um, but before we jump into that, let's go ahead and start off with prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have provided us the opportunity to worship you. You have provided us the tools with which to do it. And I thank you that when we're in that kind of a relationship with you, it isn't one-sided, that you reciprocate your presence back to us. Lord, I pray that as we learn about what it's like, what it means to worship you in spirit and truth this morning, that you would speak to us, Father God, that your presence would be with us. Lord, I pray that you would use me to open up uh, new insight and new avenues of worshiping you to those gathered here, and that all that I would say would be glorifying to your name. In your name I pray, amen. So 
We're going to start out this morning in John chapter 4. And uh, this, you probably are familiar with this uh, passage. It's where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And so it's kind of interesting in a couple of ways because Jesus being a Jew would not normally have interacted with a Samaritan at all, much less a Samaritan woman. And the fact that it's just Jesus and this woman at the well kind of tells us something because in that culture, the gathering at the well was where women went to be social and this woman is coming alone. So it kind of, just to set the stage a little bit, not only is Jesus talking to someone who he, in his culture, shouldn't have been, but she's someone in her social group probably wasn't often associated with. She was kind of an outcast. At least that seems to be what John is telling us about her. So let's see what happens in this chapter. We're going to start out in verse 5. And it says, So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that is about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, wor you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, so that was a lot of verses to share with you. So let's try to unpack that a little bit. Jesus is talking to this woman about living water, and he tells her to ask for living water, not just regular water. And she is very confused by that, which I think anybody in that situation probably would have been. And she thinks he's still talking about the well because she says, well, Jacob, our father gave us this well. 
are you greater than Jacob? Thinking that Jesus had some, you know, special water maybe, like a bottle that he kept hidden or something like that. And Jesus is talking, he's not talking to her about physical water. I think that's apparent. I think we've probably all heard this passage shared on enough to know that. He's talking about something else. So what is he talking about? Because whatever this water is, he's telling her and he's telling us that it will be a wellspring of eternal life. And again, he's not talking about future. We're not talking about after the second coming when we're, we've gone through judgment or we've all been resurrected. He's talking about now, the here and now, a wellspring of eternal life. So what is this living water that he's talking about? And he goes from talking about living water to talking about true worship. So I think the point that Jesus is trying to make to this woman is that the worship she knew beforehand is going to become obsolete and there is a true worship. He's saying the hour is coming that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. So we really need to find out what this means. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? What does it mean to worship in spirit? And what does it mean to worship in truth? And how can we go about that in our lives today? So let's start out by talking about what worship means. What does the word worship mean? And it is actually an old English word that is, we've, it's lost a couple of letters. It used to be worth-ship. It used to be understanding and acknowledging and assigning the true worth of a thing to that thing, whatever that is. And we're going to value it accordingly. So how do we do that? How do we do that? You know, that's kind of easy to do with an inanimate object, say. You know, think of a gold ring or a piece of jewelry, a diamond or an antique. We can take it somewhere and someone can appraise it and can tell you what it's worth. You know, we do this with cars, houses, furniture. You can do it with something that's a little bit more ineffable like a stock, a bond. When we start talking about people, it gets a little bit more difficult, right? We can't buy and sell people. Of course, that does happen and did happen in our history, but it's morally reprehensible, right? We don't assign a dollar figure to someone. You can make the argument that employing a person is in some way valuing them, right? You know, I make so many dollars an hour at my job, so that hour of my time must be worth this thing. And you can ad- agree or disagree on how much that is. And probably mo- most of us disagree on how much our employer values our time, but we don't have much choice in that matter, right? Um, but can we really do that with God? We don't employ God. We're not hiring him for a position and we're certainly not paying him a wage. We don't do that with other relationships that we're in. We don't do that hopefully with our spouses or our friendships. You know, if you approached every relationship in your life and tried to attach a dollar figure to the amount of time you're spending with that person, your relationships would probably not get very far. So again, how do we begin to assign God his true worth and value him accordingly? How can we worship him? 
really the only way to do that is in a relationship with him, right? Again, if we go back to a spousal relationship, you have to show your spouse that you value her or him. You can only do that in relationship with him. So we get one clue. We get a first clue in how we can truly worship the Father from Jesus' words in verse 22. And he tells the woman that you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. So the first step to worshiping, to true worship, is knowing who you worship. We have to know God. We must know who God is. We must know what his character is, what his qualities are, if we're going to assign him his true worth, if we're going to truly and deeply worship him. So that's the first step. So if you're here in the church today, you probably have already made that step. You probably already know who God is. Maybe you don't. And if you don't, there are lots of people here who would like to introduce you to him. And he is more than willing to make that first step too. You know, there are lots of people in this world who God has made the first step towards. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a house where God was always present. He was always talked about, but not everybody had that blessing. So if you don't know God, but you want to worship him, the first step is to get to know him. For the next step, we're going to go to Romans 12. And we're going to start out in verses 1 and 2. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul is speaking to the church at Rome, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the words up there probably don't say the word spiritual. It says true and proper, but it's kind of the same thing. In the Greek, that word is what we would say reasonable or rational. Um, I'm reading from the ESV and it says spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so that phrase, your spiritual worship or your proper worship or your reasonable worship, depending on your, your uh, uh, translation, is where we're getting our second clue. This is what Paul is telling the Romans that their spiritual worship is. And it starts with being a living sacrifice. We just actually sang about that, right? About being a living sacrifice. Bryce didn't know what I was going to preach on this morning, but it's pretty appropriate. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world. So if we're going to live as a living sacrifice, we can't live the way the world does. We can't live according to the flesh, but we have to live according to the spirit. We have to live according to the will of God. All right, so how do we do that, right? That's tough. Uh, how, how do we know what to do? So we can go on and we can look at verses three through eight. And in three through eight, he says, 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So here we get, we're starting to see a little bit more direction, right? We can start to apply this principle a little bit. Paul is saying, each of you have been given different gifts in your life. We need to use those gifts for the body of Christ because we are all members of the body. We need to use the things that God has given us for his kingdom. So whatever it is that you find yourself doing, whether you're a teacher in a high school, whether you work in fast food like I do, you might work at the university, maybe you take care of kids, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you work in business, Maybe you're a pastor like Mario. Whatever you find yourself doing, it seems like Paul is telling us there's a way to do that for the kingdom. And it doesn't, you don't have to necessarily stop living life. You know, I, when I was younger, I used to really struggle with this idea of how to be holy, how to be righteous. Because I saw a lot of people who were, um, full-time ministers who were going into missions. And I felt really, I really struggled with this, that I'm not doing enough, right? I'm not doing enough. I'm not giving up enough. I'm, I'm, but you don't have to necessarily leave your job to be a missionary. You don't have to necessarily go be paid by a church. You don't have to be employed by a church to be working for the kingdom. You can be working for the kingdom and be working for the state government at the time because it's not a matter of what you're physically doing. It's not a matter of where you physically are. It's a matter of what's in your heart and who you're dedicating your life to. Again, we're living as living sacrifices. A sacrifice means that something is given up. Well, I'm giving up my goals, my desire for building my kingdom, and instead I'm going to work towards building the kingdom of God. And you can do that where you are. If you think of Esther, right? Esther was not in a godly kingdom. But she work, did work for the kingdom of God. She responded to the moment that was put in front of her to do the work of the kingdom. So we can do that. Again, we're, we're getting closer to the practical, but we're still not quite there. Okay, how do we do that? All right, we're going to work in our job for the kingdom. How do we do that? How do I make my job about the kingdom and not about my bank account or about whatever, whatever else I make it? So we'll look a little further in verses 9 through 21. And Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in, this, in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek, how, seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, so the picture is getting clearer, right? Paul's dialing it in. He's focusing in on how you can actually day-to-day begin to do this. In your Bible, if you have a heading above this little section, it probably says something like the marks of a true Christian or how to be a true Christian. And really, I think what Paul is encouraging the Romans and through that encouraging us to do is to reflect the qualities and the nature of Jesus in our daily lives. If we do that, what we do, whatever we pick up, whatever our hands find to do, is going to be done for the kingdom. Because doing what Jesus did will change our heart into be more like the nature of Christ. And whatever Jesus did, he did for the kingdom. He said it multiple times, right? I'm about my father's business. I'm doing my father's will. And that's really what we're being called to do. These concepts are about what is in our heart. So that's what worshiping in spirit is. It's about the status of our heart, who our heart is directed at. It's not, worshiping in spirit is not so much about what, our, what we do with our hands or our mouths, but it's about what is in our heart when we do those things. So it's, it is possible to sit in this church and to sing songs, but for our hearts to not be worshiping God. And the flip side to that is, it is possible to be in your job, to be making money, to be waiting on tables, teaching at the front of the class, arguing in a courtroom, whatever it is that you guys do, and be worshiping God in those actions because of what is going on in your heart. That's where worship is located. That's where true worship is located, in your heart. You can see this sentiment reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. There's not time to go through all of that today. But if you go back in your own time and you will see Jesus, you'll see themes. If you read through that, it's Matthew 5 through 7, you'll see a theme pop up. Jesus will say something like, when you pray, don't go out into a crowd and pray loudly. Go in your closet and pray in secret. He tells people to hide their prayers. He says, when you give money, don't do it showy in front of everyone. Make it so that when you give, your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Again, do it in secret. He says, when you fast, don't put on ashes and sackcloth and walk around mopey. Oh, I'm so hungry. He says, do it in secret. Why are we hiding these things? It's not because we're ashamed of them. 
It's not because we're ashamed of the cross or ashamed of God. It's because we're not doing it for the people that see it. We're doing it to the Lord. And the Lord sees what's going on in our heart. First Samuel, when Samuel is sent to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, God warns him, don't look on the outside. It says, God says, I look at what is on the inside of a man. I don't judge by his external appearance. So when we're worshiping, God doesn't judge us by our external appearance. You know, every time I get up in front of you guys, I question whether or not I should wear jeans. You know, it's a little casual, right? And I, I grew up in a time where it was like my church was a mixture of people that would still come in three-piece suits and some people would come in shorts and sandals. But there was always that like, the person that dressed up is doing it right. The person that's casual is, we're happy you're here, but you know, put forth a little bit more effort, right? But God's not looking at what I'm wearing. He doesn't care if I'm up here in a t-shirt. I mean, he probably cares that I'm clothed because that would be a little bit awkward. I know you guys do. But he's not caring about whether I'm wearing Armani or Gucci or Walmart or Target. He's caring about what's inside. Why am I doing it? What's in my heart when I'm doing it? Again, we're still a little bit in the theoretical, right? So, okay, we're going to live our lives trying to reflect God's nature. We're gonna to try to make our actions for the kingdom, but how do we do that? Still a little bit theoretical. So if we look at Matthew 25, 40, which is the parable of the sheep and the goats, it gets a little bit more tangible. What does Jesus say there? You know, you probably know the story. The faithful are being separated out from the unfaithful. And God looks at the faithful and he says, well done. You know, when I was hungry, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was tired, you gave me rest. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, when did we do that? When were you in prison? You're God, you can't be in prison. And he says, what does he say? He says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did also unto me. And to the unfaithful, he says, whatever you didn't do to the least of these, you did not do to me. So that makes it very clear, right? What we do to others, we do to God. So that brings us to worshiping in truth. We've kind of covered worshiping in spirit. It's about the heart. It's about what we do, where our heart is directed when we're doing the things we do. But it doesn't end there because actions are also important. So we're gonna look at worshiping in, in truth. And to do that, we're gonna to go to James. We're gonna start in 127 and we're gonna go into the second chapter. And James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you come sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not the rich ones who oppre- are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of its transgressors. So James doesn't pull any punches, right? He's very clear. You want to have a true religion, and that word for religion in that passage in Greek can be religion or worship. If you want to truly worship God, you're going to take care of the orphans, you're going to take care of the widows. What is he saying? He's saying, if your worship is true, it will translate into action. If your worship is true, it will be followed up by the things that you do. It will be backed up by the things that you do. And what you need to do is take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. In James' world, that meant orphans and widows. In our world, it may take on a slightly different form, but it's still taking care of the people who cannot take care of themselves. What else does he say? He says you you should not play favorites. He says there's no partiality. So if someone walks in that looks like the kind of person that you want to be around and you decide to be around that person and that person only, and then someone walks in and it looks like the kind of person you don't want to be around and you decide to ignore them, then you've messed up. You've failed. Your worship is not true because you're looking at the outside and not the inside, right? And that's not how God treats people. God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at the heart. God sees the true value of things. And if we're going to assign the true value to God, we have to also assign the true value to our fellow man. And every single person there's the image of God, right? So if we value the image of God in one person less than we value the image of God in another person, then we're not assigning the true worth or the true value to God. And then James finishes this up by repeating the same command that Jesus also repeated. Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. And very close to that, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. And James, James heard that and he said, you know what? He's right. If we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're not loving God, truly. He reemphasized that to the community that he's speaking to. So if our actions aren't echoing what our hearts are saying, then something's out of alignment, right? Then that's not really what lies in our heart. We get these sentiments carried out in the Bible. We see it all the time, right? You judge someone by their fruit. You judge someone by what's done. That's what we see all the time. So if our actions 
aren't producing fruit that is reflecting what God wants it to reflect, then our hearts must not also be reflecting what God wants it to reflect, right? All right, so we've spent a lot of time talking about worship, but I haven't yet talked about singing, right? I've not talked about any of the things that we associate with worship. What I'm going to call expressive worship. So there's the kind of worship that we live out in our daily life, and that is the true worship. That's what God is really after. But then there's also this element that we are also called to do that we can call expressive worship. That's what we just did this morning when we were singing songs. It's what some people do when they dance before the Lord. It's what David did when he danced before the Lord. It's what some people do when they create art dedicated to the Lord. These are things expressing that internal life that's in the heart. We're expressing our worship. And this is kind of how we're going to wrap up this morning. I want to talk a little bit about that. So as I talk about this, I'm going to invite the band to come up. And um, we're going to uh, sing a little bit before we leave. So if we're not worshiping in spirit and truth, our expressive worship is not going to be all that it is meant to be. That worship in spirit and truth that we just talked about, it must be reflected in that expressive worship. It won't have the meaning and the depth that it should. You know, there's not a lot of time this morning to really go into great detail about how, how we should worship God in this expressive manner. So if you want to learn more about that, there is a resource that I have that I would recommend. We went through it in small groups several years ago. It's a book called, by N.T. Wright called For All God's Worth. If you were in our small groups back then, you might remember going through that. And I found it very helpful. Um, I think it actually, when we went through this, I think it did bear fruit in our Sunday morning worship. And I think it bear, bore fruit in my personal life as well. So I highly recommend you, you picking up that book if this is some part of your life that you find lacking. If you feel like you come and sing and it doesn't really do anything and you wanna deepen that, this book is a great resource for you. And if um, you pick it up and you have a hard time understanding it, because N.T. Wright can be a little dense at times, for those of you going through our current Wednesday group, we're going through an N.T. Wright book, and you probably have maybe already experienced that a little bit, even though we've just scratched the surface of that book. I'd be more than happy to talk through you with, if you pick up this book and it's a little over your head. I'd be more than happy to talk through you with but getting back to expressive worship, there's a few things I want to say about it. So what are we doing when we sing songs to the Lord? What exactly is happening? One of the things that we're doing is we're reflecting what's going on in heaven. The Bible tells us that at all times there are creatures singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God's presence is filled with songs glorifying Him. So when we do that on a Sunday morning, or maybe in our houses, in our quiet times, or maybe on our drives to work, we're reflecting what's going on in God's presence all the time. It's a really good thing, I think. It's a really good thing to do. That, that in and of itself has a value. But I, that's not all that's happening. 
Another thing that's happening is we're inviting God's presence into our lives. But we know that's happening in God's presence in heaven. But when we're singing songs to him, we're saying, I want that here in my life, in my heart. And so it can help enrich what's going on in that heart, right? There's also something that, if you went to the men's camping trip, you heard me talk a little bit about. Something we're doing is boasting in the Lord. That's literally what the word hallelujah means. It means to boast, that first part, the halal part, is a Hebrew word for boasting, bragging, saying how great is this? How cool is this? Look what amazing thing this is. That's what that means. And then the Yah part is literally the name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses on the mountain. And he says, who am I to say is sending me? He says, my name is, we say Yahweh now. Some people say Jehovah. It's anytime you see in the Old Testament, the words, the Lord, and it's usually written in a slightly different font. It's the name that God told his people to call him. It's like saying, hi, my name is Adam. He said, hi, my name is Yahweh. And when we say hallelujah, we're saying, we're boasting in Yahweh. So we're singing songs of praise and of worship. We are boasting in our Lord. For all those gathered to hear, whether they are present in physical form or not. So it's important for these songs to reflect true theology, right? So in Colossians, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So he puts singing songs of thankfulness to God on the same level as teaching and admonishing one another. It's important that our songs reflect accurate theology. So if you've ever been sitting in the church pew and we sing something and say, is that really what it says in the Bible? Because I've done that. That's good. You should ask that question, but you should also follow it up with action. Is that what it says in the Bible? Let me look it up. Ask Christ about it. Ask Mario about it. Ask me about it. And we can say, well, yeah, it's maybe a little weird or maybe not, but it reflects this teaching or this belief or whatever. I'm, I'm more than happy to have that conversation with you. But when we're singing, we want to sing the truth, right? And that gets me to my last point. Sometimes we'll be singing songs, especially when those songs are supposed to be cries of our heart, like the one we sang this morning about being finding fire or um, I remember when I was growing up in the church there was a song that was very popular that uh, faithfulness is what I need brokenness is what I need right you might remember that song if you've been around a lot I remember my dad saying you know we sing that song a lot and I don't think people really know what it means they don't know what it means to be broken by the spirit of God so sometimes we might sing a song and you might say I like this song, but it doesn't quite reflect. Like, I don't know if I'm really living up to that. I don't know if I really want to be refined by fire. And that's okay. 
because we're not singing the song necessarily saying that this is the way that it is right now. We're singing the song as a statement of faith. This is what we want to be. It is spurring us on to that action that James told us. When we're singing songs of expressive worship, it should stir action in our hearts. And that action, that stirring should move forward into actual action. And if we're only doing that on a Sunday morning, it can be hard for that momentum to carry through out the rest of the week, right? But even so, it's still why we do it on a Sunday morning. It's part of the reason why we do it. To me, this is the most important part of singing songs on a Sunday morning because it is a statement of faith that I am declaring. I want to be refined by fire. I believe that God has never let me down. I believe that God is great. Whatever the lyrics may be, I'm declaring it in faith. And when I sing and worship, I'm trying to make it the prayer of my heart. I'm not just saying the words, but I'm trying to let it get inside and make it the prayer of my heart. So what I, something I've recently done is I've created a playlist on my Apple Music of songs that I have found particularly moving or particularly appropriate to things that I'm struggling with in the moment in my life in this time or things that I have felt God's presence during when singing them. And if I'm having a rough day, or if I need a little extra pick-me-up in the morning, or if I'm just not really feeling like a good Christian, I will throw that music on and I will let those songs be a statement of faith as I sing them. Because that is what expressive worship is supposed to be. It is a declaration of faith of what we want ourselves and our world to look like. may not say this is what things are like now, but it's what we're hoping for. It is the prayer of my heart. So I'm going to turn it over here to Bryce in a moment, and we're going to sing that Refiner's Fire song again. And as we sing it, I'm going to ask that you pay attention to the words and allow those words to become a prayer of your heart. find yourself struggling over the course of the week, maybe pick up that song or another song that is important to you. I'm sure you all have had songs that you have felt God speak to you in the moment of. Put it on Spotify or Pandora, Apple Music if you have it, Google Music, Amazon Music, you know, there's YouTube. You can get almost all of these songs for free on YouTube. Take a moment, listen to the song, and allow that to become a prayer of your heart so that it can stir you towards the action. It can stir you towards what is the true worship. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you minister to us that you teach us, that you have given us so many ways to encounter you in your word, in songs written about you, in your nature, in the, the world around us, in other people. You speak to us, you cry out, your spirit cries out to us, saying, I'm here, my presence is here for you. Lord, I pray that your presence would follow us into our week, to 
our minds, into our ears, that your spirit would stir us up into that true worship where we can begin to live our lives as though we're living them for you. We can begin to build your kingdom on this earth, not our own kingdoms. God, I pray that you would show us those hurting and those needy, the ones who are broken, who need you, and who need us to be you in their lives, who, who need us to be the conduit of your spirit into their lives. Father God, I pray that everyone gathered here would have opportunities arise in their lives where they can speak your presence, your spirit, your love into their lives. In your holy name I pray, amen. We want to thank you for listening. We pray that you were blessed and encouraged. If you like what you heard today, subscribe.